Take your Bibles, if you would. I'd like you to put maybe a bulletin or a finger into Second Corinthians chapter 5. We'll get there in a few minutes. Uh, we'll be spending <clears throat> the main part of our time there this morning. But uh, we're doing a series uh, very different than anything that, we've, that I've done before. And uh, we're going through on Sunday morning the Beatitudes, but we're not uh, preaching the actual text as much as we are uh, other portions of the Bible that deal and explain. And uh, the uh, thing that I like to say very often is if you want the world's best commentary on the Bible, just read the Bible. Uh, the Bible explains itself. The answers are there. There, uh, there are many places. And uh, as I was preparing this message, I got to thinking, maybe I ought to check a commentary or something. And I said, well, what? all I'm getting when I read a commentary is someone else's opinion about the passage. Now, opinions we have certainly a lot of, do we not? No end to opinions. But what we'd like to do is get God's opinion. Amen. Get God's answer to this, and and uh, we started a couple of weeks ago with "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." And and uh, Memorial Day weekend, we spent blessed or last time we spent "Blessed are they that mourn." Uh, uh, Memorial Day weekend was right, and then uh, last Sunday was the meek, and we. And I preached a message about Abraham, he, I mean Moses, as the meekest man uh, recorded in the Scripture. And, and this morning, the one I'd like for us to look at, and, and uh, we are starting here in this text because we need to understand the, the uh, want to keep this thought in mind as we go through the passage this morning. It says, Blessed are they which hunger and thirst... After righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, it is 11.38 on Sunday morning. How many of you are already anticipating lunch? Uh, uh, some teenage boys, uh, they anticipate the meal, the following meal before the first meal is consumed. So, they're already thinking about lunch while they're still eating breakfast. And uh, it just continues that way uh, until changes happen. And then you can't eat like that or you end up looking like a donut instead of consuming them. Amen? But uh, the idea here is that Jesus is summarizing the entire Sermon on the Mount. He is giving us uh, what has been called the Beatitudes, what has been called things that... Bring blessing to your life. And the, uh, I, I believe that they build on one another. I believe that you can use these things for even a, a spiritual checklist to, to see how you're doing. One of the greatest problems that we have today is we believe in our sufficiency instead of being poor in spirit. Uh, in America, it's really even hard to understand the word poor. Uh, because the word poor means that you cannot obtain that which you need. Uh, Visa and MasterCard have put pretty much an end to that. I mean, if you really need something, you can borrow. And um, yet being poor means you can't get it, even though you desperately need it. And there's no way we can get what we need spiritually until we come to Jesus Christ and He gives it to us. It doesn't come from inside of you. It comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And once we realize this, that will give us the proper attitude toward the works of our hands. Mourning. You know, God still blesses those that mourn. Don't go out and try to reshape society. 
But you can still take your sorrow for the wickedness of our world today before holy God. And he will bless you for it. That was sermon a couple weeks ago. Meekness is learning to operate under the authority and at the direction of another. How many of you have said, I'm just tired of this. I'm going to do something. And you made a mess. Raise your hand. You did that. You see, that's not meekness. Meekness is doing things at God's direction. That's why Moses was able to raise the rod over the Red Sea and the sea divided. He had direction. If he had tried to do that on his own, we'd have just laughed at him, would we not? Would have been silly. What in the world is raising a stick over the sea going to do? But God said to do that first. And then God opened the sea and Pharaoh's army was drowned. Meekness is one of those things that can be lost so easily. And Moses gave us such a terrible example of that. He lost his temper. He said, must I fetch you water out of this rock? Must we? He included himself with the Lord there. And he lost his ticket to the promised land. Didn't lose his salvation. But he wouldn't be able to go. You see, it's only after we learn to operate at God's authority and God's direction can we actually cultivate or allow this process of hungering and thirsting after righteousness to occur. You see, you don't have to, if you're a healthy person, you don't have to say, well, man, it's two o'clock in the afternoon, I skipped lunch, I'm not even hungry, I, I think I need to eat something just so I can keep my health up. Does anybody have that problem? Uh, I, I don't have that problem. It's... 10.30 in the morning, I'm going, wow, I'm ready for lunch, but we can't do that for a while. We've got to keep moving here. How many of you have that problem? Uh, a whole lot more of us, yes. Uh, that, uh, you see, it's natural for your body to get hungry. Now, if you're worried about something, if you're sick, if you've got uh, other issues happening, it's really easy to skip food, is it? isn't it? Your body naturally wants hydration. And if you purposely withhold it from your body, your body will develop a thirst. And, and, and you will uh, do something to quench that thirst. And, and so what, what we're understanding here as we begin is these are not things that you gin up inside you. This isn't something you say, I'm, I'm going to work on hungering and thirsting after righteousness. If you're a healthy person, these desires are going to present themselves. In fact, uh, the doctors tell us that uh, all of this thing about needing to drink two or three gallons of water a day and all of that is uh, really not necessary. Your body will tell you how much water you need to drink. And we'll keep you hydrated under normal circumstances. And if you allow yourself, your body will tell you when it's full. Uh, it will also tell you when it's over full. But too late. You, you can't do anything about that. You, uh, and you can train yourself. Oh, what is it? July 4th is the hot dog eating contest. Isn't that right? Well, uh, those things make me feel ill. Uh, Fifty-some hot dogs. Oh! But they now call it a sport. Because you have to train the human body. 
And I think I agree with that on certain aspects because if I tried to ingest 52 hot dogs in a 24-hour period, I think they'd be taking me to the hospital. How about you? Um, never eat more than eight or nine at a time. I mean, no, I'm just joking. Listen. There is some training that goes on of our appetites. But the natural desire is there. And the question is, how do we get that? How, how do we get that hunger and thirst after righteousness? That's the question. Well, the simple answer is start with being poor in spirit. Mourning is a natural result. Mourning is not something that you just put on. It is something that comes from your inner soul. Meekness is training to operate under the authority and at the direction of God Himself in His Word. But what I would like for us to do is turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I believe here we'll have one. Uh, Of course, there are more than one, but... One of God's commentaries or one of God's uh, clarifications of this idea of what it means to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Let's look at verse 17. It says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. How many of you have memorized that verse and have quoted it on many occasions? But here's the context of that verse. Look back to verse 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. You see, when you get saved, God changes you. Amen? And, and that new creature that God has created has new and different appetites and desires. And those new appetites would rightly be hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Because that's what God wants us to do. And yet, how much energy do we expend in a normal week preparing beverage and food for our human body? I mean, to cook a nice meal takes some effort, doesn't it? And I I will tell you, a nice home-cooked meal beats anything you can buy at a restaurant any day of the week and twice on Sunday. I mean, uh, that's, that's my opinion. But it takes a lot of effort. I've been known to walk for several blocks so I can get a cup of good coffee instead of mediocre coffee. Am I the only one that's ever done that? Uh, okay, good. I'm glad some people are agreeing with me there. I mean, I just, uh, if I'm going to drink it, I, I want it to be worth drinking. Amen? Uh, and yet, in comparison, how much effort have we put forth 
in spiritual food, spiritual beverage. Have you ever met someone that was hooked on junk food? I mean, just potato chips and candy bars and soda pop and... But I'll I'll tell you, maybe this is just my weird way of looking at things. Have you ever met one of those health food crazies that everything's got to be homegrown, organic, and everything's got to be this and that? And and you, you put the health food person next to the junk food person, and I really don't see that much difference. I'm sorry, in the way that they handle themselves, physical strength and and all of that. When someone just enjoys life and enjoys food, those, those are the healthiest people. Are they not? And you really don't want to know what they do to make your organic stuff organic. You really don't want to know. Because you'd never eat it. But we're talking about hungering and thirsting after righteousness. We're talking about a a new creature in Jesus Christ with new desires and, and new natural responses. And so let's just go through this chapter today, chapter 5 of the book uh, of 2 Corinthians, with the thought of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Look at verse 1 with me, if you will. We're going to read through verse 6. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so, that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up in life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit, Therefore, we are always confident knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, this first section here uh, of 2 Corinthians is giving us the prospect or the understanding that we are to walk by faith, not by sight. Why are we to walk by faith? Because our expectation, our life goal, is not what we can assimilate here on earth, not what we can put in the bank, not what we can obtain through... <clears throat> our proudness or our wisdom or, or ability. We'd hope that you wouldn't stoop to uh, dishonesty or lack of integrity to take things from others that you can get those. But that's what this world is made of, is it not? But it says that our expectation is to have that heavenly home eternal in the heavens with God. You see, if I'm living today in the light of eternity, how much of what I did yesterday is now unimportant? That's where we got to start with this thing. Because if I'm living with eternity in mind, if I'm living preparing to be with God in heaven, here he talks about being clothed with that house made in heaven, that, that we would not be unclothed. 
You know, once you are saved the Bible way, praise God, you cannot lose that salvation. And I qualify that the Bible way because many people make a profession of faith that isn't real. In fact, Jesus, later on in this very sermon, the Sermon on the Mount says, as He is ending it, many are going to be in that day saying, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in Thy name? That's preachers and done many wonderful works. Uh, those are the people who do good things in Jesus' name. They're not all saved. That's what the Bible says. It says if you and I are going to be a part of that crowd, our prospect needs to be on that eternal home with the eternal God. One preacher put it this way, Your mortal life here on earth is but a dressing room for eternity. How are you going to be dressed for eternity? If we would just allow that truth to sink into our mind and into our soul, it would change a lot of decisions that we make during the week now, wouldn't it? It would refocus us on really important things and help us leave the unimportant things to the sidelines. See, our theme this year is the just shall live by his faith. And if you're saved, you you need to walk by faith, not by sight, because your life and your work does not consist of merely the things that are done and obtained in this physical world. It is preparing for eternity to live with God. Can we say amen to that? And then he builds upon that thought. Verse 8 says, We are confident, I say, willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Verse 11, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. It says we labor. You see, there is work to be done in the Christian life. There are things that we ought to do. But as we invest in this labor, as we invest in this work, we're confident of one thing. That to be in heaven is far better to be here on earth. Are we confident of that really? I remember hearing the story of a preacher... I heard this story when I was a kid, so many years ago, I guess, in some of your minds, few in others, amen. Uh, but a preacher was preaching about heaven, and and uh, he he gave the invitation, and nobody moved. And and he was just standing there, and says, I've. I've, I've preached about heaven and, and the glories of God and said, none of you want to have that relationship with God. And somebody piped up says, we thought you were leaving tonight. And uh, that's the way most of us are, is it not? Somebody said, if I knew where I was going to die, I just wouldn't show up there. Well, it doesn't work that way. We don't know when the Lord is going to take any one of us. If you'll stop and just look over the events of this last week, I bet every one of us in this room could think of several occasions where just one little slip, one little misstep could have led you straight into eternity. Just texting as you cross the street. Don't do that, please. It's not that important. Let alone 
I don't know how this works. How do you text while you're riding a bicycle? Delivering food from the restaurant. I mean, I, I don't know. And it's not even a regular bicycle. It's one of them electric things. It goes whether you're pedaling it or not. I mean, uh, don't talk to me about texting and driving. I mean, I, I, we, we're way past that craziness. I would have to challenge you that someone who is doing those kinds of things is not thinking about eternity at all. Not even conscious of the fact. And yet the Bible tells us that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we're going to receive those things that are done. When's the last time you heard a sermon on the terror of the Lord? I mean, I'm looking through my notes, and I, I don't see one for quite a while. I mean, we talk, every once in a while preach about a, a whole sermon about hell, and we refer to verses like this often. We understand God's judgment and try to bring it out uh, because it's part of God's Word. But I'll tell you, in most churches, in most circles, uh, do you think Joel Osteen would ever preach a sermon on the terror of the Lord? I mean, I, I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek, but... I can promise you that's never going to happen. And yet the Bible says that that ought to be one of our motivations. God's not going to cut any person any slack. I don't care who you are. That's what that verse means. God is going to judge every person. Where is he going to start judging? The Bible says right here with his own people. That's where he's going to start judging. And we need to, we need to labor, but we, we need to understand that we do not labor to get eternal life. We labor because we already have it. We labor because we want to have something to say thank you with and to praise God in eternity. And you see, Paul says, we are made manifest, verse 11, to God. God knows what's going on in my life. He said, but I'm hoping and praying that what's going on in my life between me and God is plain enough that you Corinthians can see it as well. Even though Paul wasn't living in Corinth, when he, that's the reason he wrote the letter. He couldn't be there personally. And he's saying that I'm trusting that you will know enough about me and about my relationship and about my work with God that you believe and understand that I am living with eternity in mind. I am living with the desire to be in heaven. But I know i got work to do. And it really doesn't matter when I get there. I'm going to keep serving God till I get there. Because I'm going to stand before God in judgment. And I want to be on the right side of God's judgment. And we get to verse 12. Paul says, For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. Paul says, listen, I'm not just trying to tell you to follow me. What he's actually saying is you should have enough sense to already know that. He said, I'm not trying to commend myself unto you. I'm trying to give you enough information to know that it's good. To follow Jesus. You know, our life ought to reflect that fact, should it not? It's good to follow Jesus. Every good thing that happened in my life has happened because of following Jesus. Everything that I would count of value... And you know, money can't buy everything. 
In fact, the most important things in life money can't even touch, can it? You think of guys like Elvis Presley, who when it came to money, had more than he could ever spend in ten lifetimes. You know what he didn't have? Was a friend. Couldn't get past the fact that money can't buy true friendship, but when you have lots of it, do you have any true friends? That's, that's just a terrible struggle. I'm glad I don't have lots of money. We don't need what we think we need. But we all need to walk with Christ. What are you holding on to? What is it that you want worse than anything else in your life? You see, that's what you've got to get rid of if you're going to serve Christ His way. That goes back to meekness, last week's sermon. Amen? You see, Paul says, if I'm beside myself, if you think I'm crazy, that's between me and God. And if you think that I'm mean and sour... It's just because I'm trying to shake you out of your thought process in your life that's leading you away from God instead of to Him. Now we get to the heart of the issue. Here is the causative agent. Here is what will develop this hunger and thirst for righteousness in your heart. Here's where it comes from. What's verse 14 tell us? For the love of Christ constraineth us. Now, we love to talk about love, do we not? When I was a kid, one of the pop songs is, What the world needs more is love, sweet love. It's the only thing there's just not, uh, there's just too little of. And it's amazing, I can still remember those lyrics 40-some years later. But that's what the world wants. But how does the world define love? Usually it comes along this way. If you really love me, you'll help me do what I want to do. Isn't that a good definition of the world's love? What did Jesus say? If you love me, what? Say it out loud. Here we go. Keep my commandments. Oh, but isn't that the same thing? Wait, wait a minute. Who benefits if I keep Jesus' commandments? Does he benefit? Do I add to him? Do I give him something that he doesn't already have? What a foolish thought. He's God. I can't give him anything. I can't enhance his existence. He doesn't need me. I sure need him. The beneficiary of keeping his commandments is me. I'm the one that benefits the most. When I live and order my life God's way, guess what? I have the best life that I can possibly have here on earth. Because the politicians can't take away my heavenly home. The IRS can't tax eternity. I'm sure that there's some idiots there trying to figure out how they can do that. But they can't. And they never will. There's a lot of people trying to tax churches. Our former mayor, one of the heads of them, 
Well, a church really doesn't help society anymore. We, we need to take away that tax exempt. Wait a minute. There's, there's this little thing in the Constitution. It's called freedom of religion. See, the right of taxation is the right to destruction. That's why they can't tax churches. But what we have today is terrorist organizations parading themselves as churches. How does that come? Well, why don't we just start enforcing some of the regular laws and letting the other things take care of themselves? That thing would sort itself out awful quick now, wouldn't it? You see, the Bible makes the most complex issues we face on earth so absolutely simple that a four-year-old could handle it. But most of our politicians are too busy acting like four-year-olds to ever understand the answer. Amen? So what do we do? We keep following God. Because my scope, my goal is not of this world. It's of that world to come. The labor that I do, I'm laboring so that I can be ready to meet God face to face. Because when I meet Him, the first time I meet Him face to face is going to be His judgment. If I'm saved, it's going to be the rewards for the works that I have done. If I'm unsaved, it's going to be at the great white throne. It's going to be eternity in the lake of fire. God's judgment is real. But you see, it's the love of Christ that constrains me. Now that word constrain means to tie up. When I worked in a nursing home, we had people that if they fell, they were in danger of breaking bones. And and you know that uh, a serious break, like a hip or something, when you're in a nursing home like that, almost always is the beginning of the end. It's a very serious thing. And, and, and so they, they had classes that they taught us. As I was an orderly in there, one of my jobs was to tie people in bed. And we had these little things, a whole drawer of them. They were called constraints. And if you didn't tie them down tight, you were the one that was responsible for their injury. I'll tell you what, I learned how to tie them down tight. Not even Houdini get out of my constraints. Why? Because I was mean and cruel and vindictive? No. Because I didn't want some 80-year-old person breaking their hip and dying a few months later because I was careless in my work. Do you know that's the reason why Jesus wants to tie you up? Because if you're left to yourself, you're going to destroy yourself. How many of you know that to be true? Somebody said, follow your heart. Don't do it! It's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Don't follow your heart. Follow Jesus' heart. That's what this passage is all about. That's what hungering and thirsting after righteousness is all about. You see, the love of Christ constrains me because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. The reason Jesus died for all men is because all men were dead. We were all on our way to hell. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Is it a big thing that I should surrender my life to the Lord Jesus Christ after what he's done to give me a home in eternity? Am I giving him much in exchange? I'm giving him a sinful life that was all messed up. And he's given me an eternal life that is perfect in his righteousness. I 
I explained that to a man one day witnessing to him. And he said, you'd be a fool not to get saved. And I looked at him and I said, why aren't you saved? Well, um, I'm not sure I'm ready to make that commitment yet. I, I wish you would listen to your own speech, sir. Uh, you, how, can you, how can you deal with somebody that's there? He's exactly correct. You'd be a fool not to take what Jesus offers. You'd be even a bigger fool to try to take what Jesus offers and try to take what the world offers at the same time. You see, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. That's where that verse comes in. You know, you can teach yourself to love just about anything. If you ever smoked, how many of you remember your first cigarette? That was quite a painful ordeal, wasn't it? But before too long... It was the first thing you wanted when you got, woke up and the last thing you wanted before you go to bed. It controlled you. I, I praise God. I do not know what the thrill of a drug-induced stupor is to a person. But we do know that all over this city... People wake up from a near coma state and the first thing they want is a tourniquet and a syringe so they can get another shot. That's the way sin works. If you want to, you could train yourself to eat 52 hot dogs. But... Without being too gross, there'd be a whole lot of regurgitation between now and that point. That's just not a very pleasant thought. You see, verse 18 says, "...in all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation." You know how my children learn to eat in my house? By eating what Mama puts on the plate. You say, well, what if they don't like it? Well, then they learn to like it. Amen, kids? Now they fight over the broccoli. Uh, That's a good thing. But if you wait until they're 15 to try that, it won't work, I promise you. You've got to do it when they're little. You see, that's why the Bible calls it being born again. How many novels have been written about a second chance on life? How many TV movies and movies have been made about somebody that really messed up, now they get a second chance in life? I heard an advertisement for some uh, debt retirement uh, organization And the guy's on there saying, well, I've got a new chance at life. I'm not going to mess this one up. (laughs) You'll be one of only a thousand that do. Uh, Give me a break. There's only one place that you can start new. That's by being born again. See, what God does when you get saved is He gives you a brand new life. The life of His Holy Spirit to live in you so that you get started out just like that little baby. You get to start all over again. Now, your past isn't going to disappear, but your future is in heaven, not on earth anymore. 
being reconciled. That means brought in agreement with. How would you like to be reconciled to God? See, that's what the Bible means when it says being perfect. Be ye therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. It means allowing God to conform you to the image of His Son. Allowing the love of Jesus to tie you up so that you can't do what you would like to do, but you would do what He wants you to do. Do you think that would reshape your hunger? Redefine your thirst? Do you think it would change what satisfies you instead of what you've given your life trying to be satisfied with? You see... Verse 19, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Jesus saved me. August 28, 1977. He reconciled me to God. I wish I could tell you that I've lived that new nature every day ever since. It's a constant battle. But it's learning to lay aside the things that I so desperately want and desire out of life, the things that I think will somehow bring me satisfaction, and allowing God to redefine those things. Allowing the love of Christ to tie me up so I can no longer operate under my own authority, under my own decision-making process. You see, we have a lot of people in this world that want to help other people. The only problem is they haven't been reconciled to Christ first. How do we know that they're not reconciled to Christ first? Because they're not allowing the love of Christ to constrain them. They have no care for the local church. They have no care for this book called the Bible. The things that are most important to God are least important to them. That's what counseling, 90% of it, 99% of it's all about. You see... I can't help you to Christ if I'm not already there myself. That's why the next verse says we're ambassadors. Now let's let's read that last verse there and it'll tie everything up, I believe. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty one for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. The Bible says that Jesus paid the price for every sin. That's why it says it is finished. That's what Jesus said on the cross. He paid the price for every sin. He has given to us the ministry of reconciliation, but we must be reconciled first. Because it was His death, burial, and resurrection that makes me righteous, that takes God's righteousness and puts it to my account. Therefore, I need to live like Jesus wants me to. You 
see, until you go through the others first, you're never going to get here to hungering and thirsting. It's always going to be a feigned or a faked thing. I'm just so excited about reading my Bible. Oh, I'm going to read my Bible today. Fall asleep. Now, don't tell me you've never done that. See, that's the difference between hungering and thirsting after righteousness and trying to hunger and thirst after righteousness. You see, if I'm that new person, those desires are going to be automatically. If I'm that new creature, is the word the Bible says. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's changing my being completely from the inside out. It's allowing God to modify so that we can be made the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus went back to heaven and we're waiting for him to come back and get us. But until he comes back, he's given us a job. That's to take His Word to the world in which we live. That's why we give to missions. That's why we go passing out tracts. That's why we're trying to fix the Union Baptist building. That's why we do what we do. Everything. is so that we can take that Word to the world in which we live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We ask that you would help us to get past ourselves. And we'd allow the love of Christ to constrain us, to bind us, to keep us from things that we would do. Lord, give us grace to be your servants. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing the hymn of invitation.